The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. We don't want this case to be about anyone else, regardless of who they are, what their politics is. We just want this to be about Ken. So I agree with you, though. It's all going to be about Ken's unlawful intent or lack thereof. We are going to make sure we do everything to hold the government, the state to their burden of proof when it comes to all the elements, but particularly intent. And I think at the end of the day, that's what a jury is going to have to ask themselves. They're going to have to go through all this evidence. For example, the 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 items I pointed out, and I recognize I'm not giving, you know, a full picture to everything. I'm sure if the state was on here, they would point out different facts. But all I can do is point out the ones that I want to focus on. And I think it's going to be very, very difficult for a jury to sit down in face of those facts and conclude that Mr. Chesborough acted with unlawful intent beyond a reasonable doubt. I'm Anna Bauer, Lawfare Legal Fellow and Courts Correspondent, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, September 28th, 2023 edition. This October, Kenneth Chesborough, the alleged architect of the fake electors plot, is set to be tried in Fulton County, Georgia, on racketeering and other charges. This week, Lawfare Editor-in-Chief Ben Wittes and I sat down with Chesbro's defense attorneys, Scott Grubman, Manny Aurora, and Robert Wilson. In a wide-ranging conversation, we discussed why Chesbro demanded a speedy trial, we debated the merits of several pending motions, and we asked whether there is any prospect of a settlement in Chesbro's case. It's the Lawfare Podcast for September 28th, Ken Chesbro's upcoming trial. So I want to start before we get into the specific motions that you guys have filed. I want to start with uh, the high altitude look at this case from uh, Mr. Chesbro's point of view. You guys have separated the case from everybody else except Sidney Powell, Uh, You've invoked his speedy trial rights and are purportedly going to trial very soon, uh, end of October. So walk us through, to start, why it is in Mr. Chesbrough's interest to have a quick trial separate from everybody else. So I think... It's the way I describe Ken to everyone. That's the reason. It's because Ken is not a politician. He's caught up in a case that's become such a political case. And that's the understatement of all time. But Ken's not a politician. Ken's a lawyer. And prior to, I don't know, 
three, four months ago, whenever, no one knew the name Ken Chesborough. And the reason is because he's a lawyer. And he's not even a trial lawyer like us who, you know, get on these podcasts and talk to all y'all. He's a constitutional election lawyer. Ken describes himself as a law nerd. And that's really what Ken is. And so the reason we thought it was important to exercise Ken's speedy trial rights, which is something in the state of Georgia that for the most part is an absolute right, is to get this case behind him. Because right now, his life is turned upside down. And we feel like his life is turned upside down simply because of the client that he gave advice to. And so everyone has to act according to their own client's interests. People have asked us, well, does everyone agree with you guys exercising your speedy trial right? I don't know, but it really doesn't matter because the folks who didn't want a speedy trial got severed off. And I'm sure they have good reasons for it. And we have good reasons for wanting to put this behind us, particularly in a situation where the state's saying this is going to be a four to six month trial just on their end. So that's really why we decided to exercise Ken's speedy trial rights, because he's caught up in something that is way bigger than him. He's caught up in something that he really never thought he possibly could be caught up on just based on giving legal advice. And the quicker we get it started, the quicker it'll be over. I do want to talk a little bit about Ken. So again, Ken is a constitutional lawyer. He's an election lawyer. And people have asked me, well, why did Ken take on this case? Why did Ken take on the Trump campaign as a client? And I'll be honest with you, I kind of roll my eyes when someone asks me that because my answer is quite simple. It's because he's a lawyer. It's because he's an elections lawyer. It's similar to when people ask me personally, Scott Grubman, why did you take on this case? And I'm not going to get into my own personal beliefs or my personal politics, but suffice it to say that people who knew me in the past, some of them found it surprising that I would get involved in a case like this. But it shouldn't be surprising because I'm a criminal defense lawyer and Ken Chesborough needs a criminal defense lawyer. And it's the same as why, if you asked Ken, why did you get involved with this case to begin with? Why did you give advice to the Trump campaign? Why? Because I'm an elections lawyer, he would say. And how often do presidential election disputes occur? Issues that we saw in 2020 really only occur, let's say, at least every 20 years. And so it makes sense that when the issues came up, Ken would be interested in providing the resolution. And one thing I think is very important is this wasn't Ken's first time being involved in a presidential election dispute. Ken was involved 20 years prior. For those of us who remember, in the 2000 election dispute, Bush v. Gore. And it might surprise people to know, but it's true, that in that case, Ken was an attorney for the Gore campaign. 
And so I think it goes to show, just like as a criminal defense lawyer, I might represent a Republican, a Democrat, an independent. It really doesn't matter that much because I am defending their legal rights in court. Same thing for Ken. He's an election lawyer. He knows a lot about these issues, whether it's the Electoral Count Act, the 12th Amendment. Those are things that my fine colleagues, Manny and Robert, will get into a little more. But that's his world. That's what he knows. So when the issue came up in 2020, it made sense for the Trump campaign to reach out to him as a well-known scholar on these issues. And it made sense for him to say, okay. Yeah. And so let's let's pause there, because I think that it's, you know, the allegations against Mr. Chesbro, I think that it's important for people to know exactly what the state has to prove against him. He's charged under the RICO statute in Georgia, as well as some other separate crimes. So why don't you guys give us a, a sense of what exactly are the charges and what does the state have to prove? Because I think that will be something that will be helpful for pe- people to understand for this discussion later. So the most important charge is the RICO charge. He's also charged in seven other substantive counts um, that involve conspiracies, all dealing with the electors and whether they're real or fake. Uh, those are almost secondary because the state misses the entire point of the Electoral Count Act. In the text of the Electoral Count Act from 1887, they talk about alternate slates of electors being out there. It doesn't have to be a Republican slate or a Democratic slate. You and I and I could get a group of 16 people together, walk down to the Capitol because it's a public building and do our own slate up and push it forward. The point is Congress is supposed to decide which one actually counts. The fact that the state argues that the governor um, ascertained certain things, it's irrelevant. The governor is literally irrelevant to this whole issue. If the multiple slates of electors go up to D.C. and say the Senate votes one way, and then the House votes a separate way, only then does the ascertainment of the governor come in because it's a tiebreaker. Otherwise, it's relatively meaningless. So anybody could put their votes together as far as that goes. It's not fraudulent. It's not fake. In this case, on the substantive counts where we're attached to these electors that we've never met, we've never stepped foot into the state of Georgia, and there's only two emails that were sent to the chairman of the Republican Party in this case where we basically cut and pasted the 2016 elector ballots, sent it to them with instructions on how you mail these things in. It's very particular where it has to go. And that was it. And just to be clear, when you say we here, you're describing the alleged conduct by your client, not the the first person plural is is just a figure of speech, right? Correct. I guess I'm going all um, <laughs> the president's uh, former chief of staff, like you used the words we, but this is Chesbro sent two emails to the Republican Party chairman here in Georgia saying, these are what the ballots look like. There's no set template, but this is what was used in 2016. Uh, this is how you fill it out and this is how you mail it. And that's the extent of it as far as that goes. And so there's nothing illegal, nothing improper. There's nothing fraudulent about it. And in fact, the chairman uh, of the Republican Party, when they actually did the votes on December 14th, had it video recorded. Um, there was a court reporter in there prior to the vote. And after the vote, he said, we're doing this as a method to protect our rights in case the lawsuits that were pending at the time yield some fruit. 
that's all it is. And that's what you're supposed to do. And that's what the ECA encompasses. And the state, frankly, just doesn't understand that based on what they've written. And also their arguments in court as far as saying, well, if the, you know, the challenges win, it's a new election. They don't understand that January 6th is a hard cutoff. Whatever's got to happen has got to happen by the end of January 6th, sort of like in this case. After that, all the machines could come back and say Trump won. There is no way to fix the election. Same problem happened in Gore because they didn't do an alternate slate of electors. Gore actually ended up winning the popular vote, but he lost it because they didn't do a lot of these things. And that's what Ken was trying to fix. With regards to the RICO count itself, you need two predicate crimes, which is essentially anything in Georgia. There's 41 different versions of what it could be. Ken isn't charged with any predicate crimes. He's charged with about 19 what they call overt acts that are not criminal acts. And they deal solely with 18 emails that he sent on a two-day period and then one email that he got back uh, from one of the other people involved. That's it. So he's on the hook for what everybody else did. And what the state misses the mark is if you actually read, and this is very rare for a statute where the legislators actually say, this is what the statute is for. It says specifically, it has to be motivated by money or physical harm. That's why gang counts and mafia counts, check fraud cases, mortgage fraud cases, Medicaid fraud are all what RICO's entitled for. In this case, you have none of that. So we raise that challenge. And then the second part is the continuity requirement that goes with RICO. What continuity means is it's got to be an open-ended type conspiracy in that it could keep going until it stopped. What we have in the Trump matter is a discrete, very limited conspiracy that goes for essentially maybe two months, if you do the math from November 3rd to January 6th. Because remember, after January 6th, nothing can change the result. Everything could be found to be fraudulent on January 7th or 8th or 9th. It can't change the result of what Congress votes on the night of January 6th, like they did in this case, going into the early morning hours of the 7th. It's over. The conspiracy's physically over. So continuity requires a certain time frame. It could be months or years, depending on how you read the case law. And it also requires that it can't be a discrete one-item conspiracy is what we are, Right. You can't keep doing this conspiracy. For example, if I'm stealing money from elderly people and I've got a conspiracy, they can charge me the RICO because I'm going to keep doing it until I'm stopped because there's, it's open-ended. But the Trump thing, it ends on January 6th. You can't keep doing it. So I think the prosecutor may have recognized that there's a continuity problem. So they made up a couple of bogus predicate acts in 2022 saying somebody lied uh, at a congressional hearing, whatever. That can't impact the goal that they've stated for this election is to get it to Trump. So they could lie about everything that they want, but the conspiracy is over at the end of January 6th slash January 7th. And so that's what we're challenging continuity and the actual purpose of RICO. And then on the substantive counts, the second slate of electors, and I'm really tired of people calling them fake, it's alternate or second slate. That's what the language in the statutes call it is completely legitimate. And the fact that the state misses the mark on such a big stage and the fact that nobody calls them out on it, none of these so-called you know, experts, because they're so happy that she's going after Trump that they can do anything silly and they don't get chastised for it because it's just frankly wrong. Let's back up because we did jump right into the details. And I just Indeed. have a 50,000 foot thing to say, a couple of things. And Manny reference some of them, but I'd like to just get into a little more detail. I want to focus on the fact 
that Mr. Chesborough had nothing to hide. Mr. Chesborough never hid anything that he was doing. And I can't get into specific details on some. And the reason is, is because y'all may have seen we filed a motion to keep out certain communications based on attorney-client privilege. And obviously, I want to be careful at respecting that if we're going to make that argument. So here's what I'll say, though. There are a few things that Mr. Chesborough did that I would argue are completely inconsistent with the idea that he acted with unlawful intent. And Mr. Aurora went through a great explanation of a lot of the issues that the state is going to have to prove, a lot of the elements the state's going to have to prove. But I want to focus on one for a moment, intent. Every single law that Mr. Chesborough is accused of violating requires proof beyond a reasonable doubt that Ken Chesborough acted with unlawful intent and that he knowingly joined a criminal conspiracy. If the state cannot prove that, then it doesn't matter if it's RICO or the substantive counts or none of this matters because they lose, period. I want to talk about two things, two pieces of evidence in in a general sense that goes, I believe, to Mr. Chesborough's intent. And the first is... In the very, very first email that the state includes in their indictment, which is why I feel comfortable talking about it because it's in the state's indictment. In that email, the first email that Mr. Chesborough sends, he says, while I understand that you might not want to open these meetings to the public because of security concerns, I suggest that you invite the news media to cover it. That's the first piece of evidence I want to talk about. Second, Mr. Aurora talked about how some of the overt acts that are attributed to Mr. Chesborough are him sending these emails to the various states saying, here's what you have to do to fill out these ballots, et cetera. And one example is that he sent such an email to Georgia, and this is all in the indictment, to David Schaefer, who is also a co-defendant in this case. And he sends all of these logistical things like, like Manny talks about. He says, here are the forms you need to fill out. It's very specific. He says, for example, you have to send this via first-class mail and not FedEx. That's how, that's how specific he got. Then he did one more thing. He attached a draft press release and said, here in Wisconsin, which is where Ken's from, we're going to release this press release so that everyone understands what we're doing and why we're doing it. And in every one of those emails that Mr. Chesborough sends, including to David Schaefer here in Georgia, he includes that press release. And that draft press release, again, it is accurate, 100% accurate. It lays out exactly what they're doing and why. And I want to talk about, I'm sorry, I said two, but just one more piece of evidence. 
the only state litigation that Mr. Chesborough was involved in in any way was Wisconsin. And the reason is because he's from Wisconsin. He has a law license in Wisconsin. These other states, he wasn't involved in the underlying litigation. He was simply advising the campaign on what they can do to preserve their rights pending litigation. But in Wisconsin, he actually helped with some of the briefing. And on December 11th, three days prior to when these alternate electors were supposed to be meeting on December 14th, Ken is making final edits to a cert petition that they're going to file in Wisconsin. And he adds a footnote. And it's funny because I remember in law school learning about all these important footnotes in American jurisprudence and rolling my eyes. How important could a footnote be, right? Well, this one is very important because in that footnote, Mr. Chesborough says, because there's pending litigation, in three days on December 14th, we are going to convene alternate electors and here's what they're going to do. Literally laying out three days beforehand exactly what the plan was. And guess what? That footnote ended up in the final cert petition that was filed in Wisconsin. And so those three pieces of evidence are examples of what I believe begins to make clear that Mr. Chesborough did not have unlawful intent. So I I just want to respond to that and and ask you, you know, how you would respond in turn, because I, I think that I get your argument that, you know, at least at first, there this was a plan based on this contingency of what the outcome would be with with the state litigation, and it the November eighteenth memo memo that Mr. Chesbro writes that seems to be what the initial plan was, but and this is not in the indictment, but you get to this December sixth memo that is in the federal indictment. And it's in that memo that Mr. Chesbro seems to be suggesting that even if there is, by January 6th, even if there is no litigation that has been determined in Trump's favor, then it's at that point that there could still be a plan to block Joe Biden to getting to 270 electoral votes. And I think that the state, that's going to be the state's response, right? To what you just said about, and, and then in that same memo, he continues to say, but there might be some messaging that you get out there about this contingency plan. And, and so I think the state would say in response to you, you know, bringing up the media transparency, they would say, well, that was all just pretext. You know, what's your response to that? And, and kind of how should people be thinking about that? There was no plan, first of all, at least not as far as Mr. Chesborough was concerned. I don't agree with even the word plan. And I know that sounds real nitpicky lawyerly, but here's my point. Mr. Chesborough didn't have a plan. Mr. Chesborough gave legal advice in all of his memos, including the one you refer to. Every single one of his memos, and if I'm thinking of the right memo, it's particularly this one, read the memo. What Mr. Chesborough does is what we all do as lawyers. He cites what? Law review articles. 
He's simply saying in every moment that Mr. Chesborough is acting as a lawyer, he's doing what lawyers do. He's not giving them a plan. He's saying, here's what you could do based on the historic precedent, the text and legislative history of these statutes. You can do these things. But here's perhaps even more importantly, even then, later on in, in, in the alleged conspiracy, Mr. Chesborough never, not once, did or suggested anything to suggest that any of this shouldn't be done with anything but completely out in the open. There is not one moment where Mr. Chesborough says, you should keep this a secret. In fact, there are many moments throughout this alleged conspiracy. I only spoke about a few of them. And it continues, I will say, even after the conspiracy ends. I'm not going to comment on specific pieces of evidence other than the three I talked about. But I will absolutely say to you that there is evidence that we might introduce, depending, of course, on what the state does in their case in chief, that shows even past the inauguration, Mr. Chesborough was insistent that everything be done out in the open. So I, I think I hear as you are talking a bit of your strategy in separating Chesborough from everybody else, uh, which is if you read a 96-page document and the stuff that he's done is woven in to the fabric of a larger set of activity, including Trump's call to uh, Mr. Raffensperger, including the Coffee County uh, escapade, including you know a bunch of other stuff that's pretty unsavory, you know the approaches to Shea Moss and and Ruby Freeman, etc. It's very easy to see this as part of a larger conspiracy that certainly had, or or the state is not crazy to allege had substantial criminal elements. But if you isolate the what did Ken Chesbrough do question, then you have uh, a bunch of arguments, which you will get, we will get to in a moment, that uh, there are, you know, defects in the application of RICO too. And uh, there are also a whole bunch of jury questions about what he was doing. So get him on his own, make the state do it fast, and isolate the question of Ken Chesborough's conduct from the larger ambience and activity of the indictment. Is that a fair summary of why you want him tried quickly and by himself? That is a fair summary because there's so much extraneous noise that comes in when you have other folks out there. The fact that anybody even thinks this is coordinated or the hint that the questions that you've asked, you can't call this whole group of people a clown show and then they say they were so intelligent and put all this stuff together. One of the problems RICO has is while the state is correct that you don't have to have specific knowledge of every other person involved in what they're doing, there is a certain amount of knowledge and the law is incredibly vague as to what the knowledge is. So if I'm in Wisconsin and somebody in Georgia decides to knock on a lady's door and harass her, 
I don't see in any world how that could be remotely foreseeable to us or that we would have any knowledge of it. We don't have to have complete knowledge is what the statute says, but there is a level of knowledge. Otherwise you're on the hook for whatever. Crazy people could go shooting up places in California. Is that part of the conspiracy? I mean, that's why RICO is so fraught with peril because you can charge anything against anyone with no link or connection. You also asked about the alternate as to what would happen if none of the cases worked out. Well, at the time, the cases were pending come January 6th. What Ken Chesborough did is as an alternative, not a plan, but as a legal alternative, there is no clear guidance on the 12th Amendment as to what the exact role of the vice president is. Can he control when the votes are counted? Can he influence how the votes are counted? Can he do all this? He put forward based on the text around 1887 when they came back as to what the role of the vice president would be. Is it merely formal? Is it actually substantive? We don't know. We've had a lot of intelligent commentators, the three or four people in the world that actually understand the ECA and the 12th Amendment say, well, there's nothing in the law that allows for the vice president to do what Chesborough was promoting. But that's the dispute that we have because it hasn't been settled. Much like every reversal in the Supreme Court that you have, you know, African-Americans weren't allowed certain rights. Well, somebody challenged it. Would that be criminal then? Because you're going against what the rules are. This is simply getting an understanding of a vague concept in our laws and him saying in his memos, we need to be able to take this up to the Supreme Court based on X, Y, and Z. Whether you agree with it or disagree with it does not make it criminal. All right. So I want to ask before we dive deep into the motions, I want to ask about this question of intent, because it seems to me that if the state cannot prove some measure of malintent, you're right. I don't see how you can prosecute a lawyer for giving legal advice if there is no corrupt intent involved in the legal advice. On the other hand, it seems to me a lot of the arguments that you guys are making fall apart if you can prove to a jury beyond a read, not all, but a lot of them fall apart if you can prove to a jury beyond a reasonable doubt that Ken Chesborough acted with corrupt intent to aid an evasion or a breaking of the law. And so my question to you guys is how much of this boils down to a jury question about Chesborough's intent? First, I will say I appreciate your question, but you said, you know, most of what you said breaks down if. And respectfully, I would say everything after that if, <laughs> I would say to us is a very big if. And it's it's always the if, <laughs> right? Just just to be clear, I'm not I mean, there there are certain people in this indictment. Uh, the president being one of them, whom I think you can infer a lot of intent from the words that he said. So you listen to the Raffensperger tape and you're allowed to kind of draw your own conclusions about what would motivate somebody to say that. I'm not sure you can say the same thing about Ken Chesborough. So I, I agree with you that it's a big if. On the other hand, the state Uh, has made these allegations. And so my question is, just assuming arguendo 
that they can prove corrupt intent. And I know your position is that they can't. How much of the rest of these arguments survive a, you know, a jury affirmation of that point? Sure. Think about where we are in the posture of the trial. Obviously, we're thinking a lot right now, putting the finishing touches on some of our finishing pretrial motions. So a lot of the things that Manny talked about and that Robert will talk about when we take a deep dive, those are really legal issues, right? We're not going to necessarily get up to a jury and start arguing all of these things. We, some of them, yes, but some of them are simply legal issues that we're raising to preserve them pretrial. When it comes to trial, I agree with you 100%. And in fact, I think there's a good chance that whoever stands up and gives opening statements in this case is going to acknowledge that not only is it the biggest issue, the only issue, I think, the only issue when we get to trial as to Mr. Chesborough is going to be, did he act with unlawful intent? Or more specifically, has the state been able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he did? And that's why I think those facts that I laid out and various other facts that will come out during trial indicate strongly to me that he did not. And let me be clear about something. Yes, we want it to be tried on our own. I want to make sure I'm clear. That's not necessarily one way or the other commenting in any way about the evidence as to any other defendants. Each of them have their own lawyers. Their lawyers are great. Um, I know Steve Sadow very well. He's a tremendous lawyer and anyone who's his client would be lucky to have him. But we simply wanted to focus on Ken. When Ken's at trial, we don't want this case to be about anyone else, regardless of who they are, what their politics is. We just want this to be about Ken. So I agree with you, though. It's all going to be about Ken's unlawful intent or lack thereof. We are going to make sure we do everything to hold the government, the state to their burden of proof when it comes to all the elements, but particularly intent. And I think at the end of the day, that's what a jury is going to have to ask themselves. They're going to have to go through all this evidence. For example, the, the, the items I pointed out, and I recognize I'm not giving you know a full picture to everything. I'm sure if the state was on here, they would point out different facts. But all I can do is point out the ones that I want to focus on. And I think it's going to be very, very difficult for a jury to sit down in face of those facts and conclude that Mr. Chesbro acted with unlawful intent beyond a reasonable doubt. Just kind of piggybacking on intent too. I think something that's important for the conversation is to kind of think of intent. I think the way the conversation has been going, the, the way we've talked about intent is almost this big general intent idea the way it's laid out in the indictment, right? Like the intent of all this, the wrongful intent was to reelect Trump. I think if you look at it on a more granular level, and maybe by example is a, is a good way to do this, but if you look at um, OCGA 1691, which is a forgery charge, there has to be an intent to defraud. So what I'm getting at is when you start to dive down on intent, you get a more nuanced look at intent. If you look at everything Scott said about the press release, uh, what's in the memos, 
the fact that David Schaefer tweeted after the electors meeting, there was no intent to defraud. So I think it's dangerous to look at intent in this big umbrella view when at trial, it's going to be intent on a very granular level. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Yeah, and so at that, let's move to a more granular level and let's get into some of these motions that you guys have. The trial's coming up October 23rd. That's when it's supposed to start. So there's been a flurry of motion practice on the docket. We're going to try to focus on three of the motions that you guys have filed recently. So why don't we start? And we've already covered some of these, but uh, let's try to give listeners a, a sense of of what they're about. So let's start with the supremacy clause uh, motion uh, that uh, challenges the indictment on on grounds that the supremacy clause uh, and the the ECA or federal law governs rather than state law. So give us your elevator pitch for that motion and just so that listeners can get a sense of what that is all about, because it is complicated. The ECA allows the states to run the election the way they see fit, but it's written in there that the 8th is what they call the safe harbor deadline out there. And if there is no resolution because there's cases pending in court by that date, then the power reverts back to the federal government, and that is our position. The date when the electors meet and vote is somewhat meaningless in that that's been set by the Constitution and the ECA. But the 8th is the actual date where everything has to sort of be resolved. And then the electors vote on the 14th of December, in this case, um, in 2020. And that's really about it. So if the 8th comes and goes with lawsuits still pending, which there were here, then there is no resolution as to who the appropriate winner is because we don't know how the lawsuit's going to go. And therefore, the power reverts back to the feds to decide how the election's supposed to be. And so our point is, we're not saying that theoretically these people couldn't be guilty of anything else, but it's more of a federal crime now based on the hard cutoff on the 8th. And that's what the Supremacy Clause says is they are taking the power back that they'd given to the states. I think some of your other motions have a lot to recommend them. This one strikes me as a loser, and I want to just be aggressive about saying why and give you a chance to respond. seems to me that the fact that the the safe harbor deadline is passed. Federal law is supreme here, but there has to be a conflict in order for state law to be preempted. There's got to be some degree of conflict. If uh, the president had shot the uh, conveyor of the electoral vote to Congress on Fifth Avenue, to use a metaphor that he has used, surely your position wouldn't be Georgia would have no 
jurisdiction because it was December 9th, would have no jurisdiction to prosecute a murder. Why is Georgia law preempted rather than preempted only to the extent that it's in conflict with federal law here? All right. So I guess I want everybody to actually read the preemption motion or the supremacy clause motion that we talked about here. It's primarily focusing in on the RICO part of it all as far as that's what they're saying is the global enterprise here. The underlying state acts, if they think that we've done something improper that's violate state law, I agree with you. Yes, it absolutely stands, the shooting on Fifth Avenue, or if there were some fraudulent records sent up. Those are the substantive counts. And so if you look at the supremacy clause issue, it applies primarily just to the RICO. The substantive counts can still stand and go forward, and we put that in there. We have other challenges to the substantive counts, as we've talked about earlier, as to whether the fake electors or whatever it is can actually be. So you are correct. We're talking about RICO, which is in direct conflict with federal law once the safe harbor day goes through. But if we then committed state crimes, then yes, they retain the power with regards to false electors or false, whatever the allegations are in the, uh, I think, seven or eight substantive counts that Mr. Chesbro is charged with. Okay, so let's move on to some of the other motions that uh, Ben does not think are uh, losers, so to speak. Um, so the second motion is a motion that you've just filed today. Uh, it relates to this continuity element in the RICO statute. Uh, so tell us about that. What What's the uh, main idea there? All right, so we've got two challenges to the RICO. One is based on 1614.2 as to what the actual intent of RICO was, which is written into the law. And the second thing is continuity, which is more of a federal concept that Georgia's never really addressed. Continuity means that it's an ongoing crime. Like, for example, if I'm stealing from somebody, if I'm running a gang, until it's stopped, the crime can continue going on. It's not a discrete, close-ended, single-issue conspiracy, which is what we have here. What we have, everybody needs to understand is once January 6th comes and goes, the conspiracy is over. Nothing can change the result of the election after January 6th once Congress has issued that edict. So all the machines could come back and say they were all for Trump and this was all, um, you know, hacked and all that and Trump really won. It's too late. So our point is this is a single issue discrete closed conspiracy and that is not what rico's meant for the supreme court of the united states has said so in georgia there's two outlier cases called dover and then i think the other one's overton in 08 that just generically mention well maybe we don't need continuity they never actually address it and the most important thing is it's never gone up to the georgia supreme court and it needs to be resolved because in every federal court in the 11th circuit which is what controls us federally and the U.S. Supreme Court, they've said you have to have continuity. It can't be a multi-week sort of conspiracy. It's got to be months, if not years. And so those are the things that we've challenged this morning to basically say RICO doesn't apply here. Charge it on the substantive counts and let's have a fair trial that way versus this multi-state, multi-defendant where people that have never met each other doing crazy things on their own just throw it all in the bathwater and make this a sexy. If you took out the RICO, this would be one of the more lame trials that you could come across because there'd be nothing sexy about it. And just to, to clarify, the Supreme Court's ruling on continuity takes place in the context of federal RICO, as does the 11th Circuit. And as you say, the Georgia Supreme Court has never really determined whether 
uh, Georgia's state RICO follows federal law on that or whether it has its own continuity rule or lack of continuity rule. Is that fair? Yes, because it's never been challenged. Uh, Lately, this became the charge de jour because you can get away with just about any piece of garbage evidence that would never normally come in in a straight up trial where you're just charged with substantive counts. So RICO has become really popular in Georgia and just about everything's out there. If you look at the way the state is alleging RICO, there is not a single indictment that should come down in this state where you couldn't charge RICO the way they've written it. And that just isn't so. And Robert assisted me a lot with regards to this. He's got a couple of points that I really want to make with regards to RICO and how it goes. To go back to your question, Ben, about the Supreme Court ruling on this on federal RICO, um, in a lot of ways, Georgia's RICO and the federal RICO are very similar. Um, in some regards, Georgia's RICO is more broad. And then in some ways, it's, it's more narrow. So it kind of depends on the exact issue you're looking at. Importantly to this conversation, though, continuity arises under the element of RICO of pattern, right? You have to show a a pattern of racketeering activity. Um, And so the Supreme Court held in Northwestern Bell, which I'm assuming is the case we referenced in the brief, seems to be the seminal case, uh, that pattern is continuity plus relationship. And when that combines, that's when you have pattern. And so Pattern is obviously a element of the Georgia RICO. And so despite the fact that maybe the the U.S. Supreme Court hasn't ruled on the Georgia RICO in that case, uh, we do know that from the 11th Circuit that the federal RICO cases are instructive to the Georgia law. And in a situation like this where Georgia and federal RICO share what we would claim is an essential element of the charge, uh, that that ruling would be very instructive on how the court should view Georgia Rico. And so just to follow up on the continuity issue, one of the key claims that you're making here is that if there was a conspiracy, it, it had to have ended on January 6th because it couldn't have gone past that. There was no, uh, there could be no, you know, changes. There's no goal anymore. But it seems to me that, and and you guys I know have have mentioned this, the, the state mentions in the indictment that, you know, there are acts that occurred after the January 6th date. So that includes Donald Trump sending Brad Raffensperger a, a letter. I believe it's like seven months after January 6th about the election. There are acts uh, that occur uh, to allegedly cover up the conspiracy. So that's uh, the people who have been indicted for, uh, you know, perjury offenses, lying to the special purpose grand jury, allegedly. And then there's also the events in Coffee County. Uh, so there's all of these things that are occurring, you know, allegedly months after the January 6th date. And it strikes me that you can have a conspiracy to murder someone, but then if later on, months after the fact, when the goal was to murder that person, if if you're still trying to, you know, obstruct an investigation or cover up evidence of that murder, the conspiracy is continuing. And so too, I think the state here is going to argue that all of these acts that were taking place after January 6th was a continuation of the enterprise and of the conspiracy. So what's the response to that? Well, I would say it's a pretty weak argument. First of all, January 6th isn't, that's what we're speculating is when this 
conspiracy ends. That is legally it. There's nothing else to do. Yes, you can have cover-ups after the fact as far as that goes, but none of the people that are accused of lying, the two people I think on the perjury back in 2022, said anything inconsistent than what's been said the whole time. The government has decided that alternate electors aren't allowed, that they're fake. And so the people that are accused of uh, the perjury charges, I mean, their lawyers can speak for themselves, but essentially they're keeping the exact same narrative that started in November and went through for the following two years. So I'm not really sure what the cover up is. There's nothing that's changed. They didn't say, I don't know what you're talking about or any of these types of things that I'm aware of, you know, based on the discovery that's been provided. The conspiracy was over. Anything that happens after that has really nothing to do with furthering Donald Trump being elected. They're not charged with a cover-up of the Donald Trump election conspiracy. In fact, everybody knew about it. That's why this came up. That's why they called witnesses because they knew who they were. And the people said the exact same thing they've been saying the whole time. We are doing this in case the underlying lawsuits win, which is what Chesbro said in all his memos. That's it. It doesn't matter any intent issues, whatever. Chesbro could be the most evil genius mind if he wanted to be, but was his legal position valid under the law or reasonable under the law when he was trying to challenge what the responsibilities of the vice president are, which has never really been done before and it's unclear, or whether we can have alternate electors. So we can dig into what motivated him. Is he MAGA? Is he Democrat? Is he whatever? None of that matters. Did what he put on paper and send out to these people meet legal standards. It's legal advice. I sent legal advice to a lot of people, but I can think in my mind, my client's guilty as hell, but I'm help, helping him as far as that goes. That's not the standard. And so all this stuff after that is just fluff to make the continuity issue come around because they know they blew it. So now two years later, two people said, we didn't know uh, that it was improper to do have alternate electors. It's not. The ECA says it, for God's sakes, if they had any talent on the government side that has looked at this, I, I'm just frustrated. My head is exploding after all these years to get into it. I'm not disparaging anybody, but my God, I didn't know the 12th Amendment before I got into this case. I didn't know the ECA, but it's not that hard if you put the work in. All right. So is it fair to say on the continuity question that you guys have some really good law at the federal level that in federal court would preclude this, this kind of a charge on continuity. You don't have it at the Georgia state level. You are principally arguing this for purposes of getting Georgia appellate courts and Georgia Supreme Court particularly to decide the question of whether the federal law essentially guides Georgia state law on this. You maybe don't expect to win this motion at trial, but it, you're really setting up an appellate question here. Is that fair? I think that's fair with one caveat being that, yes, we do think we have good federal law on our side. I wouldn't say we have bad Georgia law on our side either, though. The right. You have no Georgia law. It's just a lacuna. Well, the case that normally gets raised in issues like this is the case Dover that we talked about earlier, right? And in Dover, what I think it's just important to know this. In Dover, what happened was a guy was committing arsons. He raised, a ch after being convicted, he raised the challenge that RICO shouldn't apply because there weren't multiple schemes 
there was one scheme with multiple acts. He had committed several arsons, right? So the court shoots that down, but they don't really address this pattern or continuity issue at all. But despite that, that's kind of been the case that has been used to stand up this idea that Georgia doesn't have continuity. And then just one other quick point that I think is important, something that's addressed a lot in the federal cases, and I guess you could read this into Dover and Georgia, is that something there the courts are concerned with and the legislature was concerned with with continuity is that the crime couldn't be couldn't continue to be committed, right? So if you think of like drug trafficking, as long as you have a supplier, you can sell drugs, you know, ad nauseum. Here, as Manny said, there was the election, the alternate electors met, and then January 6th happened, and that's the hard deadline. I know some people would probably say, well, here we are in 2024, President Trump's running again, couldn't he do all this again? And actually, the courts are out in front of that issue. There's a uh, opinion from the Southern District in Florida from Trump v. Clinton in 2022, where they said the fact that another election could happen is not enough to constitute the crime happening again. So maybe that's a very long-winded way of saying, uh, yes, federal courts are on our side and the Georgia law is not bad for us either. All right. Let's move to the last motion that we're going to discuss. This is also a motion uh, challenging the RICO charge. And you guys have a lot of other motions that are, you know, uh, motions that go to the discrete uh, allegations against uh, Mr. Chesbrough, but we're mainly focusing on these RICO uh, challenges because I think that is the big question here is, is whether or not the RICO charge itself will stand. So let's talk about that motion. What is it and, and why do you think it's compelling? That motion deals with what the point of RICO is. You don't get very many statutes in the Georgia code or even the federal section where before they say what the crimes are, they say, this is why we are writing the RICO law. RICO requires motivation of pecuniary gain or physical harm. When they wrote it and amended it in 1997, prior to that, you actually had to prove financial gain. So they couldn't get the pimps and some of the traffickers and things like that, because if you stop somebody before they can sell it or sell the child or the drugs or whatever, they haven't had the financial gain. So they changed it because those people were dodging Rico to say it's got to be motivated by financial gain. There is no case in Georgia that has ever come down that didn't have a financial element in it. And you can just Google it or go to Westlaw as far as that goes. Or there's got to be some type of physical harm or threat out there. So that's where the gang violence comes in. That's where the mobster issues come in. But generally, it's Medicaid fraud, ripping off elderly people, check cashing schemes, things of that nature. This has none of that. There is no pecuniary gain in this case that's been alleged anywhere. And there is no physical harm that's part of the conspiracy or the point of it that needs to be alleged that didn't happen. And so that is a very basic level. If you just read the statute, the words mean what they say, and they say what they mean, as our Court of Appeals has said. And so our point is, this doesn't meet that criteria. The substantive counts, have at it. RICO, not so much. All right. So one clarifying question on this. The goal has to be pecuniary uh, according to the statement of purpose of the statute. Is pecuniary gain or physical harm one of the elements of the statute, or can the state simply argue, 
hey, uh, that may have been the purpose of the statute, but the statute's a little broader than its purpose, and the elements of the offense don't require that. There isn't written any element that says this, but it's not even legislative purpose. I mean, Title 16, Sub 14, you know, 1, 2, 3, 4, you go down, that's the RICO statute. They actually took a section of the statute and wrote down, this is the only time we want it applied. This is why we're doing this. And this is the point of it. So while it's not an element, you have a very big argument for abuse of prosecutorial discretion for alleging a RICO case, which doesn't meet the actual needs of the, the RICO statute itself, what it was entitled for. Because if you let the government do what they're doing now, there is no single crime in the state of Georgia or indictment where you couldn't be charged as part of a RICO conspiracy because it just takes one person or a business to become an enterprise as far as that goes. Everything could be RICO with no closed end dates, no financial needs, nothing. And what happens is then the evidence rules sort of get relaxed is essentially what the point of this whole RICO thing is. And everything comes in and that's why stuff from Arizona and all that becomes arguably relevant. We asked to be severed, so a lot of that stuff wouldn't come in against us and cloud the issues, which is what I think you know, maybe the government's looking for by calling 150 witnesses or whatever they claim. If you actually focus in on Chesbro, the case is non-existent you know, legally. I have stated, we've stated in motions and I've stated in press conferences that, as Manny said, the RICO statute here in Georgia is really problematic. And and here's the one thing I'd want to say. You guys have probably covered, if nothing else, incidentally, the use of the RICO statute here in Georgia in some other high-profile cases. And a month or so after Madam D.A. Willis indicted Mr. Chesborough and the 18 other defendants, the attorney general of the state of Georgia brought a arguably even more sweeping RICO indictment against the folks who were involved in the quote unquote cop city Atlanta police training center and cast such a wide net under that statute that in that case, folks whose only involvement was to raise bail for some of the protesters got indicted. Now, here's why I'm saying that. Because you have a lot of people who are associated with one side of the political aisle who are extremely happy about the broad use of RICO when it comes to our case. But then immediately thereafter, that same exact statute is used in a way where now the political issues are reversed. And the point being, you cannot be okay with a statute that allows the prosecution to overcharge just because it happens to be in line with your politics. Because the problem with that is next, that same statute is going to be used in ways you don't like. And it's so interesting that here in the state of Georgia, we are seeing that play out where literally the same commentators who are getting on all the national news you know, programs saying, wow, what a creative and wonderful way that Miss Fonnie Willis used RICO against these 19 folks. 
And then the very next segment is, oh, my God, what a horrible way Attorney General Chris Carr overused RICO against the cop city folks. But that's the problem. This isn't politics. This is about the law and the law has to be applied fairly to all. And if you allow a prosecutor to misuse a statute and it feels really good when it's on your side, when it happens next time and it's not on your side, it doesn't feel as good. And that is why we don't worry about politics. We call the statute out for what it is. It allows prosecutors, whether it's the attorney general or the Fulton DA's office, to overcharge, cast too wide of a net, and then all the evidence rules go out the window. Okay. So let me go back, though, really quickly to the pecuniary gain question, because I do have a, a question on this. So look, the type of motion that you have filed is the type where usually what you're saying is the indictment is there's some defect in the indictment because the uh, one of the elements or, or requirements was not included in the allegations in the indictment, right? And here you've said there's no allegation of pecuniary gain or physical threat or, or harm. I think that the state could make the argument, though, that you know, there, there are these motivations related to pecuniary gain here, maybe not spelled out in the indictment. But for example, you know, these alleged false claims of fraud that are in the indictment were being used to raise campaign funds through, uh, you know, the Trump campaign, through other uh, individuals who had organizations that they were raising money uh, for. One uh, organization that comes to mind is uh, Mr. Chesbro's co-defendant, Sidney Powell, her defending the Republic PAC. So, all of these, uh, you know, elements of financial gain are, are maybe there. There's also implicitly in some of the allegations against, not against Mr. Chesbro, but against his co-defendants about harassment of election workers. It seems to me that there is an element maybe there of, of threat of physical injury or physical harm. So it seems that the state, what they could do if this is really an issue, they could just have a superseding indictment that spells this out more clearly. So why would I be wrong to think that this isn't really a, a problem for the state's case if there is some kind of, you know, thing that they left out? If you're right about it, it being a requirement for having pecuniary gain, why can't they just uh, supersede the indictment and, and spell that out more clearly? So the statute says the crime that you are committing, being that electing President Trump, has to be motivated by pecuniary gain. The fact that tangentially you could go three stages removed, like a Kevin Bacon movie kind of situation, and say somebody made some money fundraising. It's not going into their pockets for an actual financial gain. It's just, I don't know what Sidney Powell did exactly, but if they fundraised off of it, is that really pecuniary gain? And was that the actual motivation? to do this conspiracy. And that's a big no. Those may be tangential issues. People are indicting them. Did I plan to commit a crime, hope that I get indicted, and then I can use that indictment to raise funds for a political campaign? Not actually in my pocket, but a political campaign. So your question is well-founded, but it goes a little sort of left, in my opinion, as far as far afield, because there's no link that this whole thing was motivated by financial gain, regardless of what somebody does in a fundraiser 
months after the fact. Right, but I think in I, I would I would point out that typically when people think RICO, they think um, now in Georgia they think gang prosecutions, right? right. There's a lot of reasons that people join a, a criminal street gang enterprise. It, it does, and it's not always motivated by financial gain. That is an element of it, maybe, but it, it's not always the kind of key driving factor of the enterprise. Sometimes it's community. Sometimes it's, you know, protection. There are a lot of different motivations that, that can kind of uh, drive an enterprise. So, why is it that it and how do, would the state even prove that that there is one core motiva- motivation that relates to pecuniary gain? Because every RICO case that you research on Westlaw or on the net has that basically listed out there. If you are doing fraud, stealing from Medicaid, stealing from elderly, check fraud, the financial gain is implicit in all the crimes. If you are a gang person, every gang indictment will say to raise your status by committing crimes, which inherently has a violence aspect to it, and to raise your status by raising funds for the gang. That's just understood. You see, in our case, we've got people that have never met all over the country going down wild hairs, if that's you know what you want to call it. And there could be hundreds of people, but at least with a gang, you can show a structure, a commonplace. We all got tattoos. We got beat in. We share some colors, any of these kinds of things. None of that exists in this. This is purely some guy's wrote a memo and said, this is how we think, you know, if there's a valid challenge at the lower level that at the Supreme Court, at the Georgia Supreme Court or congressional level, we can have it fixed. There was no financial motivation behind any of that. There was no violence behind any of that. Now, if somebody goes on a wild hair and, you know, intimidates somebody and saying, change your mind, you can't control all that. Otherwise, everything falls under your definition. There's got to be some guardrails to it. And so the statute clearly says, did I decide to do this with the motivation of making money for me or potentially hurting someone? That's what a gang does. And that's what financial crimes do. That's what mobsters do. And if you read the preamble to the statute, they talk about the Organized Crime Act in Georgia that we had that we now made into this RICO issue. So it's all there if you choose to hear it. But the problem is it makes your prosecution a lot harder because you have a lot more rules if you don't have RICO. And that's kind of where we are. Against that analogy, Anna, just pushing back a little bit, you said, you know, people will join a gang for like, no doubt, some people join the gang for community, right? There's no uh, financial incentive there. I think that's a bit of a, a misanalogy, though, because it's not a crime to be in a gang, right? So simply joining the gang isn't a crime. Nobody's being charged simply for being in a gang. Uh, they're charged for then doing something motivated by financial crime for being in that gang. So here, even if you held, which in no way are we, but even if you held that there was a Trump gang, if Mr. Chesbro chose to join the Trump gang, in so doing, there's no crime there. There's no financial motivation, would not be eligible for a RICO prosecution. So I just think there's a, a, a clear distinction there. All right. I want to close by asking you guys a question that you have been asked before, but we're a little closer to trial. So I want to ask it again, which is whether there is any prospect of a settlement of this case. It seems to me from the state's point of view, they have to be at least a little bit concerned about the possibility of an acquittal. And 
you guys would have to acknowledge that going to trial here is not a zero risk proposition for Mr. Chesborough, who is in any event not a central player to the conspiracy that the DA has alleged. It seems like it should be ripe for settlement when you've been asked this before. You've said, no way, no how, we're going to trial. Is that still your position, or is there any possibility that there's a a, a plea between now and three weeks from now? I think we're headed right towards trial, but there is an absolute pre-trial resolution that is appropriate, and of course we would accept, and that's to dismiss the charges against Mr. Chesborough. Well, that's true of all defendants all the time. Well, uh, well but you asked me the question, and I'm no, going to no, answer the question the way I see it, is that in this case, we believe it's appropriate. You're right. Of course, every defense lawyer would say that. But I was asked the question, is this case going to go to trial? My answer is yes, unless the state does the right thing and drops the case against Mr. Chesborough. Do I think they're going to do that? Very unlikely. And therefore, we'll be at trial. And again, I've said this on other podcasts and in other interviews, but I want to make this point. It seems like the state's getting all these brownie points and all this credit for accepting, quote unquote, our speedy trial demand as though that's a mechanism under state law. They don't get to accept or reject that we make the demand and they have to go to trial. And so we are ready to go to trial. The state says they're ready, although I will say we still don't have all of the discovery. We still don't have all of the Brady material. So I would question whether they really are ready. It's easy to say you're ready. But we are ready to go to trial, and we are ready to defend Mr. Chesborough's rights. So if I were a betting man, I would say we will be in trial on October 23rd. We will pick a jury as quickly as we can, and we fully expect that Mr. Chesborough will be acquitted. We are going to leave it there. Scott Grubman, Manny Aurora, Robert Wilson, thank you all for joining us today. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a material supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org support. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast was edited by Jen Pachihowell, and your audio engineer was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.